Can we give our kids one more round of applause for leading us in worship today? <laughs> Man, it is a joy not just to see them, but to see them leading us in worship as they are singing about Jesus Christ, as what they're learning about Jesus Christ. And isn't it a joy to know? That's what they're learning about this Christmas season. Man, I am glad that you have come uh, to worship with us as well. Thank you, Hayes. Uh, welcome to a lot of you guys. I know we got a lot of vi- uh, visitors and guests today who came to hear the kids sing, but welcome to Double Oak Community Church from wherever you came from today. We're glad that we get to worship together. If you got a copy of God's Word, grab it, if you will, and let's go to Luke chapter 2, verse 22 is where we're going to be in just a second. As we continue on in worship, Luke chapter 2, verse 22, second gospel, second chapter, 22nd verse. As we continue our Advent series called O Come, and that word Advent, you probably hear that a lot, that word literally means just the coming, right? And so what we're celebrating at Christmas is this coming of Jesus Christ. But if you're here with us last week, we talked about that tension that we always feel at Christmas, that we kind of have a dual emphasis, that on the one hand, we're celebrating that Jesus Christ has come 2,000 years ago, born in a manger, But on the other hand, he also is coming again. This story is not over, and there is a second coming, another advent that we are longing for. And so we're celebrating the Christ that has come and the Christ that is coming back for us. We'll look at that here in a second in Luke chapter 2, verse 22, in just a moment. Uh, I know most of us are married here in this room, and so if you're married, you'll understand this, uh, that when you get married, uh, you begin to learn things about yourself that you did not previously know. Is everybody familiar with this? Uh, When you're single, you just kind of do what you want, uh, and it seems normal to you because it's just you. And then you get married and start to live with someone and find out that not everything you do is normal. And you now have this mirror that lives with you who will tell you about these things. Uh, Things that you thought were fine, they're going to tell you that's not fine. Uh, And this always comes up for me at Christmas. Apparently, I have this bad habit that Allison keeps reminding me of. Uh, It is this, that whenever I want something, uh, instead of waiting for Christmas to get it or allowing a Christmas list to accrue, if I want something, I will just go buy it then. This seems very normal to me, right? If I want something, just go ahead and get it. Now, this is a little bit of a holdover from my single days. Most of you guys know I didn't get married until I was 37, so I spent a lot of time by myself. Uh, And in my defense, uh, at Christmas, look, there weren't a whole lot of people to buy me gifts. It was just me mainly, so I would buy gifts for myself. Also, I was single. I was only taking care of myself, so I had disposable income. Uh, I don't have very extravagant taste, and so this just seemed very easy for me. Uh, minimal waiting, minimal disappointment, just go ahead and buy the thing, right? And so this is what I would do, right? And so this infuriates my wife. He says, look, there's nothing to get you at Christmas. You've already gotten it. Can you not leave something on the list? And so I'm learning, I'm trying to wait. Um, But look, I I thought it was a win for me in that I got what I wanted early, but I'm now realizing there's a loss in this situation as well. Because look, I think our kids actually have it better at Christmas, do they not? Think about how our Christmas fe- our kids feel about Christmas. I mean, they are looking forward to Christmas Day. They are eyeing those presents under the tree. 
They live in expectation. They live in anticipation for this day when they're going to get those presents. Because guess what? They don't have disposable income. And so there's something under there for them, something that they could not get for themselves. And it's probably going to be even better than what they were, were wanting. They've seen this happen before. And so they have this expectation that builds all throughout the month. And they get the joy of knowing that it's been given to them. That someone who loves them has given them this gift. And that is a joy you just don't get when we get things for ourselves. And we don't allow other people to get them for us. And we find ourselves limited by only what we could do for ourselves. What if we could regain that expectation? What if we, as most of us adults in this room, could regain that sense of anticipation for what the Lord might want to give us both here in the now and also in the years to come. And that's what we're going to look at this morning at Luke chapter 2, starting in verse 22. Uh, This is my favorite Christmas passage. I preached on it multiple times over the years. Uh, Last year, I shared with you my favorite Christmas carol of O Come, O Come, Emmanuel. That beautiful tension that exists in that song. Uh, This is my favorite Christmas passage. Now, this is also a little bit of an odd pick uh, because it doesn't actually occur on Christmas night. This is about eight days after the birth of Jesus Christ, but I'm going to call that and say it counts, right? It's right there in the season, in the event, but Jesus has been born and Mary and Joseph are going to go up to Jerusalem Uh, to have a dedication of sorts. There's a ritual in Judaism that you would perform after the firstborn uh, comes, and so they are going to Jerusalem uh, for this dedication. So look what happens, verse 22 of Luke chapter 2. It says, when the time came for their purification, according to the law of Moses, they brought him to Jerusalem to present him to the Lord. As it is written in the law of the Lord, every male who first opens the womb shall be called holy to the Lord. And to offer a sacrifice according to what is said in the law of the Lord, a pair of turtle doves or two young pigeons. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. And this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel. And the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. And when the parents brought in the child Jesus... To do for him according to the custom of the law, he took him up in his arms and blessed God and said, Lord, now you are letting your servant depart in peace according to your word. For my eyes have seen your salvation, that you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for glory to your people Israel. His father and mother marveled at what was said about him. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, Behold, this child is appointed for the fall and rising of many in Israel and for a sign that is opposed. And a sword will pierce through your own soul also, so that the thoughts from many hearts may be revealed. And there was a prophetess, Anna, the daughter of Phanuel of the tribe of Asher. She was advanced in years, having lived with her husband seven years from when she was a virgin and then as a widow until she was 84. She did not depart from the temple, worshiping with fasting and prayer night and day. And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak of him, of all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. We have here a story of two people who didn't really expect to be in the Christmas story, and yet here they are. 
you find Mary and Joseph heading up to the temple. Now, this is not a feast day. It was not a high holy day. It was just a random day at the temple. And it would not have been rare for young couples to be bringing their children for this dedication ceremony. Whenever there was a birth, they would come and, and bring their child. And so Jerusalem is probably not, maybe not fully packed at this point, but there would have been a lot of people coming and going. And as Mary and Joseph are making their way to the temple, they run into Simeon. Now, you might think, just looking at the text, that Simeon was the person they were coming to see, but that's not actually the case. Simeon is not a priest. They're not at the temple yet. He's just a guy. But he's a very special guy, and that the Holy Spirit has told him, Simeon, I'm not going to let you die until you see the Messiah. The Messiah that's been waited on for four centuries and more I'm not going to let you pass away until you see the Messiah. And so he has been waiting, looking for this. And the Holy Spirit leads him there and he meets Mary and Joseph. And we can assume he is probably a little bit advanced in years and that he's ready to die after this event. But he meets this young couple and asks, can I, can I hold your child? And as he does, he pronounces a blessing over them. Not just over Jesus, but over Mary and Joseph and really for the whole nation. And then while this is occurring, someone else comes up, Anna, a prophetess. Now, she also is not in the priestly clan, but it says that she is 84 years old. She married, probably very young, as everybody did in that culture. She was married for seven years before she was untimely widowed. And instead of remarrying, as would have been her right, she's just been living in the temple. She's been in the temple probably for about 60 years. And it says that she has been worshiping and fasting and praying night and day for 60 years. And she also comes upon this scene. And as she does so, she begins to kind of prophesy and pronounce a blessing and to speak about Jesus Christ. You can imagine kind of bewildered Mary and Joseph might have been at this scenario that two older people have kind of come out of nowhere who really didn't know even one another and the Lord is now pronouncing a blessing over them. But there is something that links these two people. Look back at verse 25 and notice what it says. It says, there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon and this man was righteous and devout waiting for the consolation of Israel and the Holy Spirit was upon him. Now skip down to verse 38, the last verse we looked at. And speaking of Anna, it says this, And coming up at that very hour, she began to give thanks to God and to speak to him, speak of him to all who were waiting for the redemption of Jerusalem. So the same verb is used of both of these people. They are both waiting for the Messiah. They're waiting for the consolation of Israel. They're waiting for the redemption of Israel. Simeon would go on to call it the salvation of Israel. They're waiting on the Messiah to come. But this is the attitude they have in themselves. They have been waiting for this. Now, the word here in the Greek is an interesting one because it doesn't really truly correspond to the English word waiting. Uh, when you and I think about the word waiting, we think about waiting. I don't know how else to describe it, right? We're, we're, we're waiting, right? You're just hanging out. You're, you're, you're waiting in line. You're, you're waiting at a red light. You're just waiting for a package to arrive, but it's a, it's a passive affair. You just kind of sit there. You look around. You wait. But the word here in the Greek is prosdecomai, uh, and it does mean waiting, but it has a, a specific nuance to it. Uh, it has the, the nuance of expectation. In fact, some people will translate this word not waiting, but looking. 
And there's a difference, isn't there? They were looking for the redemption of Israel, looking for the consolation of Israel. They were actively looking to see what the Lord was going to do and when he was going to do that. They're both waiting, but one of them is passive and one of them is active. I mean, look, imagine if you're just kind of waiting for something to happen or waiting at your house or, or waiting for the mail to come. You're probably not just kind of on pins and needles waiting. But I know when my daughter is waiting for her grandparents to arrive, she's typically at the window looking for them, right? Looking, are they here yet? Is that their car? Are they coming? Is they, are they here yet? You're, you're looking for them. We're not just being distracted by something else. There's an active part of looking for somebody. That's the word here. Simeon and Anna are looking for the Messiah. They're looking for the redemption of Israel, which is why they saw something that nobody else saw. Did you catch that? Remember, Israel's, I mean, Jerusalem's packed. There's tons of people in the city. There would have been a ton of people kind of milling around, just kind of doing their daily tasks. Imagine the summit during Christmas season, the Galleria at Christmas season. There's, there's lots of people there, but you don't really take note of them. You don't talk to them. You just dodge them. As you're going about your day, you got your own things to buy. You got your own errands to run. You, you recognize that there's a crowd, but you're not aware of them. Simeon and Anna were aware of things that nobody else saw. Do you realize that there were people there that day that brushed shoulders with Mary and Joseph and didn't know it? There were people who also had been waiting for the Messiah, at least in the normal sense. They became within feet of the Messiah and never even knew it. You know why? They might have been waiting, but they weren't looking for him. Simeon and Anna were looking for the Messiah. And because they were looking for them, they were expecting the Messiah. They saw something that nobody else saw. What if God actually wants to show you something more this Christmas season? What if he actually wants to, to turn our attention, not just from, from where we are, uh, but ahead to give us a, a holy expectation of what he is doing and what he's about to do and what he's going to do, that he's promised to do? What happens when we go from simply waiting to looking for a Messiah? Which begs the question, what are you looking for? Like just in general, what are you looking for? Let's just talk spiritually. What, 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 are you, what are you looking for? What do you anticipate? What are you expecting? What are you, what are you on the lookout for in your life when it comes to our attitude towards how we walk into our days, what we expect to happen, what we expect to see? What are we looking for? And the answer I fear for many, if not most of us, is Nothing. We're not looking for anything. We're, we're waiting. And look, if Jesus decided to come back, we would all be stoked. We'd be thrilled. That'd be great. I am for it. I think it'd be awesome if Jesus came back today or even this month before Christmas. But, you know, maybe he does. Maybe he doesn't. It's been like 2,000 years. The odds it's going to be in the next three weeks, I don't know. Just seems slim. 
And so instead of just actively looking for something where I might be disappointed, I might have to, to wait a little longer, that might be uncomfortable, how about I just, I don't look, I just kind of wait instead. And we're not actively looking for anything. But boredom is not fun. And so instead of looking for the Messiah and looking for Christ and looking for his kingdom to come, we will fill our time with something. We have to find something to give us meaning. We have to find something to give us joy, something to occupy us, something to give us fulfillment. We will look to something. And so what are you looking for? And again, the answer might not come to us. I'm like, I don't, I don't really know what we're, we're looking at. What are we looking for? Because for most of us, it isn't just this one thing. There's one national pastime that we all participate in, uh, whether we know it or not. We're all looking for something to fill all of our time, to give us some sort of fulfillment. What we all typically do is that we immerse ourselves in distraction. We immerse ourselves in distraction. Just like when you're sitting at a red light, what do you immediately do? You pull out your phone for the 4,000th time that day to check the weather that you already know and the news feed that you've already seen, to check the scores that you've already looked at. But what else are you going to do? We need to be distracted. And it works, but the reason it works is because we have a thousand different things to distract us with. And if you string enough of those things together, if you string enough distractions around us, it actually makes us feel for a moment that we're actually fulfilled even when we're not. Now, this is not a new idea. We've been doing this forever. Regardless of the technology, we've always been doing this. If you go back to 1985, Neil Postman wrote a book called Amusing Ourselves to Death. It's actually a great book. It was prescient for its time. It's actually still relevant today. You can go back even farther to a book called The Image by a guy named Neil Boorstin. We talked about how we've traded the reality for, for fakes of those things, but, but it'll do in a pinch to kind of just distract us and to give us a, a fake sense of fulfillment instead of the reality that God made us for. This is our national pastime. We just string together hundreds of different things and it passes the time. This is how YouTube works, by the way. You know that, right? There is no one video on YouTube that everybody watches. There is no one video on YouTube that will capture everyone's attention or even capture attention for long. The goal of YouTube is not to get you to watch one video. The goal is to get you to watch any video and then to watch another one after that. And another one after that, another one after that, and another one after that, another one after that. And next thing you know, you've lost 30 years. You wake up and say, how am I old? And what have I seen? What happened? If you've ever gone down the YouTube rabbit hole, the reason that happens is you watch one little thing that leads to another little thing that leads to another little thing that leads to another little thing. It's not one choice. It's not one thing. But if you string enough of them together, it actually holds our attention just briefly long enough to give us a, a fake sense of fulfillment. This is how all social media works. It's also how Amazon works. It's how Netflix works. The goal is not just to get one product. The goal is not to watch one television show. The goal is to watch one thing that leads to another thing that leads to another thing that leads to another thing. And if you just stay in that swirl of distraction, you can fool yourself into thinking that there's actually something here when it's not. 
And you might say, yeah, but I don't, I, I don't, I don't do that. Yeah, yeah we, we, we do. P.S., this is, this is kind of how addiction works too, if you think about it. Because at the end of addiction, there's typically not one choice that makes you addicted. It's not going to be one drink that gets you addicted. It's going to be the first drink followed by the second that leads to the third. And you say, well, I'm going to need that tomorrow night too. And then I'm going to need it the night after that. And then after that. And then I'm going to need the morning and the night after that. And then a the day after that. And I'm going to need it all day after that. It was never one drink that did it. But here I am finding myself addicted. This is also how debt accrues too. You ever notice that? Typically, we do not spend ourselves into oblivion with one horrible financial choice. It's a thousand small choices instead. This is how Amazon works. Uh, you, you buy it. You got to buy this. Well, you got to buy that. And then you got to buy that. I mean, it's a one-click buy. You got to get that. And then you got to get this. Why? It's on sale. It's on sale. I'm saving money. I have to buy that. I mean, you got to get this. It's Black Friday. You got to get these things. You got to stuff. And you have all the boxes that pile up on your front doorstep. And you get all the things. And you don't realize until January where you see the bill and you have a heart attack. For all the things that you bought, it was never any one choice. It was all these little choices that made me think I was in control, that made me think I was being fulfilled, but at the end, it actually robs me of fulfillment. And we do this more than we think. Let's talk about social media for just a second. You know how much I love social media. Uh, look, numbers here are tough. Uh, studies are being done, though. People are trying to watch the different trends of how things move. And I looked at a lot of different studies over the past week. Uh, here's what the, the, the latest current studies will say, that, that worldwide, the average time any person uses social media is about, uh, it's a little less than two and a half hours a day. The average human on the planet spends a little less than two and a half hours a day on social media. That's all the platforms. That's Facebook, Instagram, Snapchat, Twitter, the whole, whole shebang. Two and a half hours a day. That's on average. So some people are more than that. Some people are less than that. If you assume that people sleep seven hours a night, and I realize that's an assumption, but if you assume seven hours a night of sleep, here's what that means. If you annualize that, that means almost two months of our life every year will be devoted exclusively to social media. 51 days of the next year will be devoted morning to night, every minute to social media. Here's my question. How do you feel about that? How do you feel? Because that's just the average. How do you feel when we recognize that if you tally up all this time, two months of 2022 is going to be devoted to social media? How many of you go, I feel great. I feel, I feel so informed. This is going to be awesome. I'm going to see all the pictures. I'm going to see all this stuff. This is Two, let's give it three. This will be great. My life is so much better when I give everything to social media. Said no one ever. And you say, why do I not me? I I'm under the average. Great, let's cut it in half. Would you be okay with a month of this next year being devoted to social media exclusively? And the answer for most of us is no. We said, but Adam, I, I would never choose to devote a month of my life to this, and no one does. It's just thousands of small little choices spread out over the course of the year that strung together keep us distracted, keeps us occupied. And in the end, it does not leave us fulfilled. It leaves us empty. This is what the world does. 
when you and I rely on our own resources, our own desires, our own circumstances to bring us fulfillment, we can keep ourselves distracted. We can fill the time. We can keep the illusion going that we're in control, but sooner or later, we will find ourselves left with nothing. We were busy, but we were not fulfilled. And into that vacuum, Jesus says, would you look for me? Don't just wait for me to return, but would you look for me? Christmas is an exercise every single year where we get to remember Jesus Christ has come for all the people who waited on him. There was a fulfillment of that promise. And not only that, even though we have Jesus Christ, we also will have the fullness of him because he is coming again. We are also like Simeon and Anna, waiting for the coming of the Christ, waiting for the Messiah to come and make all things right. But the question is, are we gonna be like the other people in the temple who got so close to Jesus and missed it, or will we be Simeon and Anna who were looking for the consolation of Israel. Who were looking for the Messiah. Who were looking for what God had in store for them and they got a blessing that we're still talking about 2,000 years later. You might say, yeah, but Adam, I still don't know if Jesus is coming in the next three weeks. I mean, what's the point of, of looking? What's it, if it's not gonna come in the next year, or the next five years, the next 10 years, what's the point of looking when you and I begin to look for Jesus Christ, to eagerly wait for Jesus Christ? It points our life in a direction where we actually receive more of him along the way. It keeps us away from wasting our time or our life and actually investing it in the only place that truly matters, which is in the one who loves us and made us and saves us. So let me give you three things that are worth looking forward to. Rather than the things of this world, let me give you three things that are worth looking forward to. And I'm gonna show you some scriptures up on the screen. And in all these scriptures, you're gonna see that word wait. And when you see that word wait, that's either one of two Greek words. It's either prosdecomai, the exact same word that we looked at here in Luke 2, or it's apekdecomai, which is a similar word and has a similar connotation of expectation. And you're going to see that every time we see the word wait. But here's the first thing that we look forward to. It's the redemption of our spirit. The redemption of our spirit. Look at this in 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verses 7 and 8. Paul says, so that you are not lacking in any gift as you wait for the revealing of our Lord Jesus Christ who will sustain you to the end, guiltless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. See, even there you can see that tension. It says, you're not lacking in any gift. God has given you everything you need in Christ Jesus. You have the Messiah. He is in you and yet there is more. Jesus Christ is going to be revealed. He is going to bring the fullness of our salvation. You see, this is an important thing for us to remember, especially as believers. If you've given your life to Jesus Christ, you are saved. The Spirit lives in you, but you don't have the fullness of your salvation yet. And we all know that because we're still struggling, are we not? We still struggle. We struggle with our own minds. We struggle with our own flesh. We struggle with temptations. We struggle with the world that's around us. It ought to be the reminder that, listen, Christ is in me. I am saved, but there is more yet to come. There's a fullness of my salvation that he is going to bring at the revealing of Jesus Christ. Instead of trying to ignore that reality, I can look forward to the day when Jesus brings the fullness of salvation to me. And he even brings it along the way. He doesn't even wait until the end. He helps me to grow in that process, to grow to become more like him. But I can't do that unless I'm looking for him, 
some walking in him. Look at the next passage. This is Romans. Oh, actually Titus rather. Chapter two, verses 11 through 14. It says, for the grace of God has appeared, past tense, bringing salvation for all people, training us to renounce ungodliness and worldly passions and to live self-controlled, upright and godly lives in the present age, waiting for our blessed hope the appearing of the glory of our great God and Savior, Jesus Christ, who gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. So look, he has come. He has given us life, but look what he's gonna do. We're waiting for his appearing. We're waiting for this blessed hope. He's going to purify us from everything. That hasn't fully occurred yet. But it is occurring and there's coming a day where we get the fullness of that salvation. Can you imagine a day when you no longer have to wrestle with temptation in any way, shape, or form? That is coming for us. It is promised to you. We don't have to settle for the world as it is now. We don't have just to, to settle for whatever we can scrounge up for ourselves. Jesus Christ says, no, there's more that is coming. When I come again, would you look for it? You can look for the redemption of your spirit. Second thing, get the redemption of your body. We get the redemption of our body. Look at Philippians chapter three, verses 20 and 21. He says, but our citizenship is in heaven and we eagerly await, you see the, the emphasis there? We eagerly await a savior from there, the Lord Jesus Christ, who by the power that enables him to bring everything under his control will transform our lowly bodies so that they will be like his glorious body. You see, when Jesus Christ comes again, there's a transformation of our very bodies. And look, we need that, do we not? Simeon and Anna are, are up in years. We know that Anna's 84. We know that Simeon is probably, I don't know if that age, but at least close. And for any of us who are getting older, you understand that when we get older, uh, things begin to break. Uh, we decay. Uh, there's more pain. We begin to lose acuity. And then you lose ability. And all of a sudden, things we used to do for ourselves, we can't do anymore. Things that we used to do effortlessly, now we can still do, but we have to do with a lot more effort. We rail against this. As we get older, we say, no, 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 I'm fine. If I just stay fit enough, or I do enough exercise, or I can, I, I can wear the right clothes, if we have this right surgery, if we, we do this little thing, we can, we can hold all, all that off. We can, we can pretend it's not going to happen to me, but there isn't a person on the planet who can push away death who can push away the aging process that happens to all of us, whether we like it or not. Look, we're all sitting still in a pandemic, are we not? In a fear of what the next wave might bring, what it's still doing all over the planet is another recognition that we're not fully in control, even of our own bodies, that our bodies are vulnerable to not just a virus, but to a host of different diseases that we can't fully push away. And Jesus Christ says there's coming a day when your very body is going to be transformed. Look what he says here in Romans chapter 8, verses 22 through 25. He says, for we know that the whole creation has been groaning together in the pains of childbirth until now. And not only the creation, but we ourselves who have the first fruits of the Spirit grown inwardly as we wait eagerly for adoption as sons, the redemption of our bodies. For in this hope, we were saved. 
Now, hope that is seen is not hope for who hopes for what he sees. But if we hope for what we do not see, we wait for it with patience. Look, we have the first fruits of the Spirit. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, the Holy Spirit lives in you, and yet we're still groaning because these are not the bodies that will last us forever. There's a promise. Just as Jesus Christ was raised physically from the grave with a resurrection body, that you and I will have one as well. There is coming a day when we are going to live in bodies that have no fear of a virus, no fear of cancer, no fear of accident, no fear of death. It is a resurrection body that cannot be killed. This is what God has promised to us. It is coming. Do we look forward to it or do we assume this is all there is? This is all I got. And we live in despair over everything that's lost as if it's lost forever. It's not. Do you not know that a day is coming in Jesus Christ when there's going to be the redemption of your very body? And then thirdly, there's the redemption of society. The redemption of society. Uh, look here in 2 Peter chapter 3, verses 13. It says, according to his promise, we are waiting for a new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. Now, look, I don't have time to kind of get into all this. I mean, we could talk for hours just on that, but most of us are cool with a new heaven. We understand that, but please understand, when you die, you are going to go to heaven to be with the Lord, but you will not stay there. Because look at the end. It's a new heaven and a new earth. When he recreates all things, he says, no, there's a new heaven and a new earth. You and I will live on a new earth physically with a brand new body. We will live physically in a society just like we do now, except in this society, righteousness will dwell. It will be the society we were always meant to live in. Can you imagine living, living in a society where you never had to mistrust your neighbor? Where you never had to worry about their motives or that they were out to take something from you? Or you knew that you were absolutely loved by every single person in society and that you loved them too. There would never be injustice. There would never be inequality where everybody has what they need, where all of us are in Christ together. We will feast at Christ's table. We will gather in his holy city. There's not just a new heaven. It's a new earth that you and I get to inhabit. This is what Jesus Christ is bringing and if you and I put all of our hopes here in only the things that we can accomplish, only the things that we can buy, only the things that we can do, we will inevitably find ourselves disappointed. We will inevitably find ourselves discouraged when it never lasts and it never lives up to the promise. But what happens when we turn forward and we look for him? We look for him. At Christmas, we don't simply enjoy all the, the things of Christmas. Those things are great. But what happens when instead we look for him? The one who has come, the one who is coming again. And we say, I eagerly await the appearing of my Savior because my citizenship is in heaven. This world is not my home. And so my life will be marked not by simply distraction or passing time. But my life will be marked by expectation of what he's about to do. In the future, what would that be like? And so can I offer you just a couple of things that, that might help us do that? A couple of things that we could actually try to begin to kind of turn our attention away from just what we can accomplish and what we can buy and what we can get for ourselves instead to live in that holy expectation 
for what is to come. The first thing is this, we need to wait in the spirit. We need to wait in the spirit. Look at verse 25. Notice what he says here. It says, now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon, and this man was righteous and devout, waiting for the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit was upon him. And it had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Christ. And he came in the Spirit into the temple. Now that is remarkable. This is rare. Remember, this is pre-Pentecost. Holy Spirit hasn't fallen. He doesn't just indwell every single person. He has got an incredible experience of God. And you say, well, why is it? He is righteous and devout. He has surrendered his life fully to the Lord, so much so that he is led by the Holy Spirit. How did Simeon know to go to the temple that day? At that time? In that particular spot? Because the Holy Spirit told him to. The Holy Spirit led him to that place on that day in that part of the temple that he might see what the Lord had in store for him because his heart was open to the Spirit. Look, we spent a whole series on this this year, learning about how we are to live in the Holy Spirit. Look, it is very possible that there's many of us in this room, we say, Adam, I'm saved, I, I do, I love the Lord, but in truth, we're not living in the Spirit. We're not led by the Spirit. Our hearts, our minds, our attention is not given to the Spirit. And so we're just there in the same temple on the same day, almost even in the same spot, and we're missing it. Rubbing shoulders with the divine and not even knowing because we're not open to the Spirit. What happens if we begin to wait in the Spirit? We begin to live our days saying, God, what do you want me to do today? Where do you want me to go today? Who do you want me to talk to today? How can I honor you today? How do you want to change me today? How am I to live today? God, I want to open up my day looking for you, looking for the places where you're moving, looking for what you have in store, ready, whether it be today or five years or 10 years into the future. I am looking for you. What happens when we are open to the Spirit? For some of you, that's terrifying but we're living in disillusionment. We're living in disappointment because if we're not led by the Spirit, then the only thing you got is yourself. The only thing you have is your own circumstances, your own resources, your own wits and abilities, and all of those will fade over time. But what happens when I live in the Spirit? I say, Holy Spirit, you guide me. You're in control. Your kingdom matters most, much more than mine. And so, Lord, I don't want to just give my life over to distraction. Lord, I want to live in you. Now look, that doesn't mean you, you never get to, to, to watch anything anymore on television or on the internet or anything like that, but it, it ought to be that those things are, well, they're the exceptions, not the rule. Instead, the rule is that my eyes are open to the Lord to say, Spirit, would you lead me and would you guide me and show me what you are doing? I dare you to pray that and see what God will do. So number one, you wait in the Spirit. And then number two, we desire better things. We desire better things. It's easy. It's our pastime to just find ourselves desiring the things of the world. There's, there's a thousand of them. They're at our fingertips. They, they, they all make them or you can have these things easily, but we find ourselves satisfied with things that help us in the moment but never give us true fulfillment. What if we're settling? Settling for the things of this world when infinite joy is offered to us. 
C.S. Lewis, in one of his most famous essays, said this. He goes, the problem for us is not that our desires are too strong, it's that they're too weak. The problem for us as humanity is not that our desires for this world are too strong. Our desires for sin are too strong. It's the opposite problem. Our desires for the Lord are too weak. We don't see what we have. We don't see the fullness of who he is. We don't fully understand what he is offering. Man, we're sitting over here peddling around with, with, with food and drink and, and money and power and influence and sex and whatever it might be when infinite joy is offered to us. What are the problem is not in the world. The problem is my desires for the Lord are too weak. And what if I dared to pray this prayer? God, would you fill in me a holy hunger for you? I don't know if I want to pray that. Try it. God, give me a holy hunger for you. God, would you show me how much better you are than the things of this world? How much greater you are than what the world offers me? They always lie. They always oversell and underperform. Lord, can you show me how much greater, how much more glorious, more beautiful, more amazing, more loving, more, 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 more just incredible you are than anything this world has to offer that life can only be found in you i want to abide in you i want to live in you i want to rest in you because in you there is life itself what happens when we we decide to say i want more than what this world can offer Having things in this world is fine, but none of them will give us satisfaction. None of them can give us life. What if instead of focusing on them and, and searching or yearning after them, we enjoy them as they come, but instead we long for, we look for the coming of Jesus Christ who is life itself. How that might change how we feel about life at all times. So do this right. Bow your heads and close your eyes for a moment. In just a moment, we're gonna sing some worship songs and we're gonna have an opportunity to respond. But with heads bowed and eyes closed, I, I do want you to really ask that question again. Um, what are you looking for? What are you looking for? I'm not gonna make you tell me or anybody else. Just... Think about it. What are you looking for? Because an answer might not come at all. And what we might need to realize is that it's nothing. It's just a constant stream of distractions. It's work, it's busyness, it's shopping, it's schedules, it's stuff. It's, it's just a never-ending stream. But in the end, what are you looking for? The answer is Nothing. The Lord made you for more than nothing. You're made in his very image. He gave his life on the cross for you. He's appointed eternal life for you. Why wouldn't we look for that? Why wouldn't we look for him? And so this morning, in just a minute, I'm, we're gonna sing some worship songs and I'm gonna be down here up front. Maybe you wanna come and, and pray at the altar and, Spend some time with the Lord. Maybe you'd like for somebody to pray with you. I'd love to pray with you here up at the front. And look, I don't know why you came in here today. I just know why God brought you here today. And what if he's trying to wake us up and say there's more? Things you could never do for yourself, things you could never get for yourself. Can you look for me? 
Look for me. And let him show you what life is all about. So Heavenly Father, help us. God, I'm so sorry when I get distracted. It happens so quickly. And so often. And you're so patient to give us chances time and again. And so Lord, we thank you for yet another chance this morning, God, not just to, to head back into the hustle and bustle and the busyness and the craziness, but instead to choose to look for you, to, to join with John and say, come Lord Jesus. Oh, come, oh, come Emmanuel. Lord, can you give us that holy hunger for you? Can you show us how to live in your spirit? That you would show us the things right around us that are happening even now or the things that are coming. Can you give us a holy hunger, a dissatisfaction with the things of this world that we might long for your return, long for your kingdom to come. I long to see your spirit move. And so help us. Lord, in this moment, we choose you. Thank you for giving us someone worth waiting for. We love you, Lord. In your name we pray. Amen.